Well, I've been thinking a lot about family these past few weeks. Obviously, with what the Lewis family has gone through, uh, watching you as a church family come together and respond and bless them and care for them. Uh, this weekend for us, Burnett and I got to have some of our family here, uh, our, our daughter and her husband and our, one of our sons and his wife, little granddaughter. So I've been thinking a lot about this whole thing of family ties. And uh, I especially, going through Christmas, um, I discovered a new set of family ties. What happened was Burnett and I went to Tacoma along with uh, Shane and Angela Simonson uh, and Sam. Uh, we went down there to see a Christmas program. And it's a program called The Singing Christmas Tree. It happens at Life Center Church in Tacoma. And it's been going on for 60 years. And it's this huge musical Christmas gala. I mean, they bring in the Tacoma Philharmonic Orchestra, their ballet dancers, their singers. And the centerpiece of it all has been for the last 60 years is this giant Christmas tree. It's like a 40-foot riser. It looks like a Christmas tree, but it's populated by people, by the choir. And uh, this was actually the last year that they were doing the singing Christmas tree. They've got something else planned for next year, but kind of a big deal, this long-standing tradition. And it was fun going down there with Shane and Angela because they both have a, a vested interest in it. Angela got to sing with that choir for a couple of seasons. Uh, Shane worked in video production with them, so they knew lots of people. And it had some memories for me as well because I went to with my family back sometime in the 70s and uh, saw the program as a kid, was super impressed, and I knew at the time that there was some distant family on the Richard side of the family that had been involved in that church. So uh, it was fun to go back and be part of this final show. Uh, afterwards, uh, because Shane and Angela had done stuff there, been involved in production, they knew a lot of people, meeting old friends, which was fun to watch, and one of the friends that Angela had sung with in the choir was a lady named, named Kathleen. Well, things worked out to where Kathleen and I ended up chatting, and uh, turns out that we both have the same last name, Richards. Well, one thing led to another, and I discovered that her husband, Colby, is actually a great nephew of mine that I had never met. So when Colby found out, he called his dad Norm, my nephew who I think I had met once as a boy, but had never had any contact since then. Norm got hold of us and in turn invited Burnett and I to come down and we spent uh, actually an overnight. They hosted us at their home and had a bunch of time with Norm and his wife Carol and Colby and his wife Kathleen and got to meet uh, Colby's uh, sons, teenage sons, which were actually my great, great nephews that I'd never met. and. Uh, and, and that's all because my family tree is a little bit convoluted. Some of you know this. Uh, my dad had four kids by his first marriage, and uh, then his first wife passed away. And when he remarried, my mom was quite a bit younger, like 33 years younger than my dad. And then my brother and I came along, which means that we came along a lot later than my dad's older kids. And by a lot later, I mean a lot later. Um, my older half-brother had been a grandfather for more than a year when I was born. 
My full brother, Dan, is four years younger than me. By the time he came along, our father had not one, but two great-grandchildren. So Dan and I were both born great-uncles. And of course, meeting Colby's kids, I realized not only are we great-uncles, we are great-great-uncles. And there is another great-nephew that because of the age of his kids, I think his kids have, have, have had kids which means that my brother and I are now great, great, great uncles. And at some point, we just become totally awesome uncles. We, you can't get any greater than my brother and I are at being uncles. Uh, thanks to some family dysfunctions, uh, the two families have really only kind of known about each other from a distance. And so that's why that weekend visit was so special to us, because family is family, even the weird ones. Uh, that connection got me started digging into some of my dad's history. Uh, my dad was born in, brace yourselves, 1897. Uh, so here's a picture of my dad at age six. So this is 1903, how crazy is that? Uh, after my mom passed away, I got going through some things and I found my dad had kept a pair of sunglasses that he had had, we think this was from about the 1930s. Okay, these were probably the zenith of style. Check those out. Yeah, exactly right. We've always been fashion leaders. That's just how we roll. Um, so lots of fun stuff that you discover. I'm getting better at putting these back in the case. It's kind of hard. There we go. Uh, I also know that my dad, back about that time, 1929, 1930, had a small restaurant in Grand, in, uh, Grand Junction, Colorado, called the White Kitchen. And here is a picture of my dad with his little establishment. and. Uh, I happen to have a copy of the menu from that restaurant. Here is the menu from the 1930s. Hamburgers, five cents. Now, why is it malted milk is 10 cents and hamburgers are five cents? I haven't figured that one out yet. Uh, you also can get buttermilk or sweet milk. Uh, you can get post-toasties. Post-toasties cost more than hamburgers do. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, kind of fun to go through all of that. And thanks to the miracle of online archives, I did some hunting, and I found a copy of a newspaper from Grand Junction, Colorado, April 14th, 1929. And right down here is an article about my dad's new restaurant, The White Kitchen, and tells all about what Mr. Richards had done to open up his new restaurant. Family is family dysfunctions and all. Out of the hundreds of strangers that we met that night at the singing Christmas tree, we felt an instant connection to this one couple simply because we share this family connection. And the passage we're gonna look at this morning is all about family connections. But once again, Jesus takes a little bit different angle on family connections and that difference causes him to say, Yet again, something that sounds outrageous. Here's how Mark records it in Mark chapter 3, verse 31. His mother and his brothers came 
and standing outside, Jesus was inside a house teaching, so standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Who are my mother and brothers? In our modern society, families are often disjointed and loosely knit. And, and there are some of us that maybe that wouldn't seem like that odd of a statement. It, the family is splintered enough, you might ask yourself, well, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Uh, our family is kind of scattered. Uh, we've got a daughter that lives in British Columbia. We have two sons that live in Bend, Oregon. We have another son that lives back in North Carolina. But thanks to modern communications and air travel and stuff, we still are able to, to stay kind of connected, but we're pretty scattered. But in the ancient world, families and families being together was everything. Your family was your safety net. The whole social fabric was built around family and families caring for each other and being together. For women especially in that day, her sons were, were her safety net. They were her security in case something happened. In the case of Jesus, Jesus was the eldest son in his family. And so his role in particular was important. The eldest son, after the father, carried the great responsibility to care for the family. And from what we can gather, it appears Joseph, Jesus' stepdad, had died young. And so Mary had been left a widow. And so Jesus plays this very important role in the life of his family. In fact, you can see that when Jesus is dying on the cross, that he uses some of his final breath to appoint John to care for his mother, Mary. That is an oldest son making sure that he had done his duty, even in his dying, to care for his mother. So with that kind of background, understanding the importance of the centrality of family and family relationships, you can see why Jesus' words were outrageous. When he's told his family is there wanting to talk to him, and he says, well, who are my mother and my brothers? If you're the eldest son and your family comes looking for you, they should get to be first in line. But instead, Jesus makes this kind of flippant-sounding comment that sounds ungrateful, it sounds irresponsible. Instead of saying, show them in, he says, well, who are they anyway? And then to make it worse, he says something that sounds like he's disowning his family. He looks around the audience and he says, here are my mother and my brothers. This is my family, not those people out there, but all you folks sitting in here. Well, what on earth was Jesus talking about? When did the perfect son become an ungrateful offspring? I'm guessing it's a good thing that Mary was standing outside and couldn't hear this. She might have for the first time been tempted to box her perfect son's ears. So why an outrageous statement? Interestingly, it's not just one, but it's three of the gospel writers that choose to include this particular outrageous incident in their accounts of Jesus' life. 
Now, if you've read through the Gospels, what we call the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because they are, it's a fancy word that basically means they're, they're parallel to each other. They tell a lot of the same story, but you'll know that they don't include all of the same stories. They, they all vary a little bit in what they're inspired to record. Uh, but of all the things they could have recorded, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all include this story. What's interesting is they each frame it a little bit differently. And when you're reading the New Testament, and the Gospels in particular, it's good to not just read the story, but to read what is around the story. What story precedes it, what story comes after it, because it's not just random. As they wrote down their accounts of Jesus' life, they were thoughtful in how they set the stage because they were telling a bigger story. It wasn't just showing random snapshots of Jesus' life. They're telling the big story of the gospel of what Jesus was all about. Each of them frames the story a little bit differently. In Mark's gospel, if we jump back to verses 20 through 21 of the same chapter, we find this. Then Jesus went home, and the crowd gathered again. So these people keep following Jesus around, so they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. That's his family saying that. They're hearing him make these claims about being a Messiah and, and you know, speaking with authority, and they're like, he's losing his mind. Not only that, he's going to embarrass the family. So we need to get this guy out of the limelight. So that's how Mark sets the stage for this outrageous statement by telling us that Jesus' natural blood relatives, having heard the things that he was saying, have concluded that he's crazy. They want to drag him out and calm him down. Now, Matthew recounts this incident in chapter 7 of his gospel. And what precedes it is Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. And I think this one section right at the end of that sermon has special relevance to this story. It comes out of Matthew 7.21. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Note the importance he puts on not just mouthing, but actually doing God's will, which is quite parallel so what we find when he talks about who is my family, so my family is whoever does the will of God. He is my brother and sister and mother. Now in Luke's gospel, what precedes the story uh, of Jesus' mother, mother and brothers wanting to talk to him, in, in a, in, the story that precedes that is this private interpretation that he gives to his disciples about a parable he had told. Now, parables were stories that used common stuff from everyday life to teach bigger spiritual lessons. And in this case, Jesus had told a story about a farmer who is tossing seeds onto different kinds of soil. And the kind of soil that the seed lands on determines whether or not the plant grows and thrives and survives. Most of the seed, the way Jesus told the story, fell on types of soil where either it never got a chance to grow, or if it did grow, it very quickly died out. There was one soil in the story, though, where Jesus said the seed that landed on this soil took root 
and it grew and it flourished. It thrived. It, it brought more fruit. Now, when Jesus told the story, he didn't define all of the parts of it to his large audience, but later in private, he started explaining to his disciples what the meaning of the story was. And here's how he explained the good soil. This comes from Luke 8.15. As for the seeds in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. So let's summarize these three set pieces, if you will. Uh, Matthew says that uh, there are some who say they believe, but they don't obey. And then Mark talks about Jesus' biological family who saw, but they had no belief, versus a spiritual family, those seated around listening to him, who both saw and believed. And then Luke talks about the good seed equaling those who hear, receive, believe, and obey. And then, after these three set pieces, each one of them follows up with this story about Jesus being in a room surrounded by a lot of people that want to listen to him, that have been drawn to him, that believe that, that he may be the Messiah, he may be this great rabbi, this great deliverer, and his family, his blood relatives, are standing outside, not, not having embraced his call. And Jesus says, who really is part of my family? What really counts here? Now, once you see that, you realize there's a deeper level of meaning, and it's all tied up in this idea of family. Uh, Jesus, uh, the folks Jesus was speaking to maybe weren't family in the same way as his mother and his half-brothers, but they did all have a strong family identity, didn't they? He's talking to a Jewish audience. What was one of the ways that the Jewish people commonly referred to themselves? They were the children of Israel. That was their most fundamental identity. They were the children of Israel. Now, when Colby and I met that night at the Christmas program, we too had an identity. We don't choose to identify ourselves this way, but we certainly could. And we could identify ourselves as the children of Andy. That is who we are. If it wasn't for Andy, neither Colby or I would be here. We are the children of Andy. When we went to visit Colby and Norm and their wives, uh, they took Burnett and I out to a really nice lunch and they paid the bill. Now, why did they do that? Well, they did that because we all share a link. We all are children of Andy. And because of that, we suddenly found ourselves receiving special privileges that other people didn't get. They didn't offer to pick up the bill for everybody else in the restaurant. They did for us though, because we were all children of Andy. Now, for the children of Israel, being a relative of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, whether near or far, caused the children of Israel to believe that they, too, were entitled to special treatment. They knew that there had been divine promises given to their great-great-great-great-great-grandfather Abraham, promises of blessing. They knew promises had been given through their prophets down through the ages, 
sometimes during their darkest days as a nation, promises that God was going to send them a deliverer, a Messiah. And they knew that when Messiah came, Messiah's family was going to have special favor, deliverance, blessing, reward. And so now here comes Jesus, the Messiah, and he is surrounded by his blood family. Most of them are only distantly related, far more distant than what Colby and I are related, but nevertheless, they are still all children of Israel. And as they understood it, that blood connection was their ticket to Messiah's favor, to his deliverance, to his blessing, to reward. It was all about just being a children of Israel. And then Jesus makes this outrageous, jarring statement to people who considered blood relations as the most important of social safety nets. Jesus holds up the closest of the close, the relationship of an eldest son to his mother and his brothers and his sisters. And he says, in essence, that there's a relationship that has even greater importance. This is important, but he's talking about a relationship that he says is even more important. Not a relationship that's based on nepotism, but one that's based on faithful obedience. He says it's not those who share a common ancestor, but those who are committed to his mission. Or as Jesus stated it, it was those who hear the word of God and do it. Now don't worry, Jesus loved his family. I mean, I already mentioned the fact that he's hanging on the cross. Some of his last words are to care for his mother. So Jesus cared about his family. And even though at this point in the story, his half-brothers thought he was nuts, we discover that later they too become fervent believers. After the resurrection, everything changes for them. And here's what we find in the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 14. All of these, talking about the early church, early believers, all of these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So the family who at one point thought he was crazy has had a complete reversal of mindset and now find themselves numbered among those who are worshiping and praying together. But what Jesus wanted to communicate with this outrageous statement about family was that there are things that are more important than earthly family. I think we all know that earthly families get kind of messy. And it, it goes way back, right? It goes all the way back to ever since uh, Adam blamed Eve for the apple, and then Cain killed Abel out of jealousy. And earthly families have been plagued with brokenness and dysfunction and pain ever since. And my family is no exception. I mean, yeah, we've got kind of a weird family tree in terms of uncles and great uncles and all that, but trust me, there's also a lot of pain and dysfunction in that family. And if we had time, we could go around the room and you all could tell me your stories, and I bet there's a lot of pain and dysfunction in your families as well. Because that's the human condition. We're a bunch of broken people and we make messes, and our messes show up in our families. And Jesus came to rescue broken, dysfunctional, pain-filled people. And he said that the, the real solution wasn't just a better technique. It wasn't just learning a few new communication skills. Those, those things are good. But he said for real solutions to happen, there needs to be a spiritual 
transformation. There has to be a realignment of allegiance with a hard adherence to a new calling. Something that calls us out of the broken patterns that we've grown up with into the new patterns that Jesus taught. Sometimes those new patterns get adopted by whole families, and it is a beautiful thing when they do. And some of you could tell those stories. In your family, something happened that changed the trajectory of a broken family. A mom came to faith in Jesus, and her witness brought a husband to Jesus. And those changed lives, their children came to Jesus. In my family, one of the big changes that happened was my dad's first family, it was two of his daughters, little girls, went to Sunday school. And at Sunday school, they learned about Jesus. They gave their hearts to Jesus. They came home. They started badgering their daddy to go to church. He didn't want to go to church, but he finally did. And when he did, my dad found Jesus. And it changed the trajectory of that family. Not perfectly, but it changed it. That's a beautiful thing. Sometimes adopting the way of Jesus, though, brings division to families. Someone puts their faith in Jesus, and yet others in the family say, that's not for me. I want nothing to do with that. And, and suddenly, instead of bringing a family together, faith can at times tear families apart. And Jesus said that sometimes that would happen. But when the new family of Jesus truly lives and loves like Jesus called us to live, even if faith should tear something apart, we find we've been called into a new family, a greater family, that has been called together to live out the way of Jesus. It's a family that transcends genealogy, it transcends race, it transcends national boundaries, it transcends social classes. In fact, that was one of the things about the early church that caught people's attention because they saw this group of people who came together across boundaries that in any other setting would have kept them apart. There were racial groups that you would never expect to see together that were fellowshipping together. There were people from different social classes in a highly class-conscious time who suddenly were supporting and loving each other. It happened because these people were answering the call to follow Jesus, and that call brought them together as a family. Now we get back to those children of Israel listening to Jesus. What they didn't realize is that Jesus was actually setting them up for something that he knew they weren't yet ready to hear. While maybe they're ready to hear about a wider children of Israel family following the Messiah, what he's preparing them for is the revelation that the family of Messiah's favor was going to stretch far beyond the cultural boundaries of their race. And it was going to include people of every tribe and every nation. Something that's interesting to note is that Jesus makes a point of mentioning not only brothers, but brothers and sisters. In a time when women often were seen as less than, Jesus makes a point to say, my family, the family of faith is for all. So what does it take to be part of the family? Well, there's a knowledge component for sure. It's hearing his words. That the crowds came together, they heard his words. They were impressed by his teaching. And so there's a knowledge piece to it, but hearing's not enough. 
Jesus emphasized over and over that in his teaching, real faith is demonstrated when people both hear and then do what he says. There's an identity component. A believer in Jesus is who we are. It's what we be. I, I have heard Jesus. I believe in Jesus. I've placed my faith in Jesus, and now I am his. I be a Christian. Pardon the bad grammar. But the be, the state of belief, is meaningless if there isn't any do. That's really what demonstrates that who I be is who I be because of what I do. You can see me living it out. And so there is always this be, do, be, do, be, do. Play it backwards. It's a 50 song. Do, be, do, be, do. <laughs> so let's bring it a little closer home. You know, there are folks who label themselves Christians simply because they grew up in a home that called itself Christian. Maybe their parents are Christians. And they say, yeah, that's me. I'm a Christian. Well, why are you a Christian? Well, because my parents are Christians. I grew up in a Christian home. I'm a Christian. They figure that identity must be hardwired into their genetic code. Or maybe someone identifies as Christian because they're part of a nation or a political party that has put the word Christian into their name. And, and you only have to look at some of the great conflicts that that tore Ireland apart for years to recognize that just because you put Christian into a political party's name, that does not mean that you're living in the way of Christ. But people do that. They say, I'm in a Christian nation. I'm in a Christian party. I, I hang around with a lot of Christian people. Or maybe they've got a more sophisticated reason. Maybe they've studied the doctrines of Christianity and they become members of a church and they went through some kind of process of formal membership. They took a confirmation class, and, and they passed. They got a certificate. And, and now, because of that, they feel they have the right to be card-carrying Christians. But Jesus says, none of those things are what make us a Christian. Not really. What defines a Christian is when someone has put their faith in Jesus. And the genuineness of that faith is seen in a life that seeks to follow him. Imperfectly, none of us follow him perfectly, but there is a heart desire that says, Jesus, I want to go where you're going. I want to do what you asked me to do. Of course, if I stop there, there'd still be something crucial missing. Because a person can believe all the right things. You can have a beautiful doctrinal statement. And you can do all the right things. You can help every little old lady you meet across the street, but still not be a Christian. Jesus once met a devout religious scholar named Nicodemus. Nicodemus believed all the right things, at least everything he knew to believe about God's plan, he was on board with it. And he had a membership in an ultra-Orthodox sect of Judaism that was proof that he was working hard to do all the right things. He was trying to believe all the right things. He was trying to do all the right things. He really wanted to be sure he had it correct. And that's why even when others might disapprove, we're told he came to Jesus late one night because he wanted to know for sure who Jesus really was. And was there something else that he needed to know? Was there something else he needed to do to be sure that he was right? 
And here's what Jesus said to this spiritual seeker. It comes out of John chapter 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, Well, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. In essence, Jesus says, Nicodemus, if you want to enter into my Father's kingdom, your knowledge and your good works are not going to be enough. You actually need something to happen that you can't do for yourself. You need your spirit to be reborn. And you can see the confusion even in Nicodemus's question, can't you? He's like, what are you talking about? Be born again. Am I supposed to go back in the womb? I mean, this sounds like crazy talk. Birth is a thing that ignites the course of every person's life. It, it is the most important thing that ever happens to you. If it doesn't happen, you don't happen. And yet the most important thing that ever happens to you is something that you have absolutely no control over. You did not initiate the process. You didn't say, I think I'd like to be born. Let's do it. It is done for you. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, there's something that needs to happen inside of you, in your spirit, and you can't do it on your own. You can't make it happen. It is God's spirit alone who has the ability to renew and remake that inner man. It says, all you can do is you can just humbly ask for it. That's faith. But when it happens, when God's spirit remakes us, things do happen. Things change. Attitudes change. God's word becomes alive to people. I've always found this interesting. I talk to people who have come to faith in Christ, and I've heard this story numerous times. They say, you know, I used to be, I'd try to read the Bible, and it just, it didn't interest me. It didn't make any sense to me. And then I, I came to faith in Jesus, and something changed. Like, I couldn't read it enough. I was so intrigued. It spoke to me. It seemed to come alive to me. Harmful things that used to attract us become less attractive or they lose their attraction completely. Things that used to bind us become less binding. Sometimes they drop away completely. Hatreds we've held onto are released. A sense of emptiness in our soul, it changes. It, it becomes filled with a sense of purpose of God's love. And with that new birth, we also find that we are now related to a new family. It's not just a personal thing that God does for us. It's not just to make me, the individual, a more fulfilled, better me. It is to take me and call me into a new family, into a new set of relationships. All those others who have also been born again by God's Spirit, 
all of us being animated and united by the indwelling work of God's Holy Spirit. That is what the church is. If you think the church is just a thing with a schedule that we meet at 9 and 1045 on Sunday mornings, you don't understand the church. The church is about a family that's been called together in faith. That's why I think we need to place a high value on spending time together. You know, this weekend, having our kids here, they, they went to a lot of trouble so that we could have some time together because we think that relationship is important. This relationship is important. And, and I got to say, for all of you watching at home, praise God that we can live stream. It is a wonderful thing. And I know there are people that because uh, you are shut in with health issues, other reasons that you can't be in person, it's a wonderful thing. But I got to tell you, I have a bit of a love-hate relationship with live streaming. Because in our society, there's this idea that if I watched it, I'm part of it. And if you think that just watching something makes you part of it, trust me, your favorite TV show, the actors don't know anything about you and you don't really know anything about them. That's not a relationship. That's just an event. And the church is supposed to be relationship. It is us together. You don't have to read very far to find that there are all kinds of studies talking about this epidemic of loneliness and fragmented human families and anxieties and isolation and a desperate need for community. And that's actually nothing super new to us. We found ways to magnify the problem, but there's always been that sense of brokenness and isolation and lostness. And part of what Jesus has called us to as he's called us into a family. The New Testament uses these different metaphors to describe the church. It talks about us being a body and that each one of us is a piece of making up a body and that body together serves God. Or it describes us as being a house, each one of us being a component of what makes up that shelter. We're a temple it says that we each are living stones being built together into a temple of worship to God. He didn't call us to be part of a pile of rubble. That's just a lot of individual stones in a pile. He said, no, we're to be fitted together to form a temple, a body, a house. He describes his church as being a bride, and it's singular. It's all of us together that form one bride. God is not a polygamist. It's not a bunch of little individual brides. It is one bride together. We are a family. We need each other. There's a world around us that needs a family like this. I grew up in a church tradition where everybody referred to each other as brother and sister. And sometimes it could be a bit mechanical. It could get a little formal at times. But on the other hand, it was a reminder that every time you address someone in your church family, you're addressing someone who was more than just an attender. They were a part of your family. They were spiritual kinfolk. You've probably been hearing about the revival that has transpired over the past several weeks at Asbury University in Kentucky. If you haven't, do a little online search and you'll read lots about it. I came across an article a few days ago written by Amber Ferguson. She's a reporter for the Washington Post. This was dated February 19th. And the article was about the Asbury revivals because even the secular press is picking up on this story that's happening. 
And she delved into some of the history of revivals at Asbury and some of the contours of what this current spiritual awakening has looked like on campus. And the news about this revival has drawn thousands from all over to come to the campus. And along with all those people showing up, there's been some understandable logistical problems. Like, where do you house all those people? And I was struck by a quote from one of those campus guests. Her name is Ashley Grant. And Ashley and her husband and their three small children had driven all the way from Columbus, Ohio to Kentucky. And here's what Ashley said. Here we are, a young black couple, and there's an older white couple offering us their home to sleep in for however long we want, and they made us feel like we were at home. They didn't know us. The only thing they have in common is the man, Christ Jesus. That's when you know that something has taken place. Well, indeed it has. Because they're family. Why is it in a time that we hear the news about all the division in our country? Racial division, political division, all kinds of division and tension and people at odds with one another. That suddenly we have the Washington Post that their attention is caught by the fact that something different is happening here. Here are people from different stratas of society, different states, different racial groups, people that should be at odds with one another from all that we're told, and yet they're family. Now she says, well, it's because of Jesus. We're not defined by our genetics. We're not defined by our skin color. We're not defined by our politics. We're defined by all those who believe and do what Jesus says. So does that mean that we always live well in this new family? Sadly, no. One of the best known passages in the Bible when it comes to celebrating the Lord's table is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. You've heard this passage lots of times when we're having communion. Here's what Paul says. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's a beautiful summary of this ceremony that celebrates Christ's death, what we call the Lord's table. But do you realize that Paul gives this summary as part of a rebuke to the church? He's actually correcting the family. Take a look at verses 17 through 18 prior to this. In the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And then he proceeds to call them out for a variety of ways that selfishness, and social class snobbery had invaded their fellowship. And his corrective is to remind them of what their family meal, the Lord's table, is really all about. 
He says, this is a, to remind you that Christ gave himself to the uttermost to rescue you. And the truth is that all those divisions aside, we actually are blood relatives. Not biological blood relatives, but relatives united by the blood of Christ. That is his life that has given us life. And Paul wanted them to see what an absolute contradiction it was to let selfishness and greed and social class invade the very celebration of Christ's sacrifice. So we're going to take communion this morning. I'm going to invite the ushers to come and serve you. And it's no surprise to me that Jesus instituted this great enduring memorial of his sacrifice in the context of a shared meal, a family meal. It wasn't designed to be just an individual observance. It was for his people together to remember what has brought them together. And I'd like you to focus your mind on three nuggets of truth buried in this outrageous saying of Jesus. The first is that membership in his family is open to all who are willing to trust him. And by that, I mean trust him to the point of doing whatever it is he asks us to do. And second, membership in his family is only possible because Jesus gave himself for us. He did for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He said, this is my body that is broken for you. This is my blood that is shed for you. He paid the penalty that we should have paid for our own acts of selfishness, our own acts of other-harming disobedience. And this mysterious gift is represented in the bread and the cup. It reminds us that our new birth into his family is a spiritual birth. It's a gift we receive simply on the basis of faith. And third, membership in his family calls us to love the other members of this family with genuine love and grace. The dysfunctions, the self-serving agendas that dominate every other human institution have no place at this family table. What I wanna do is invite you to bow your head and pray for a moment before we take the elements together. And, and maybe you're out of sorts with a brother or a sister in Christ's family today. It happens. I've been a pastor long enough to see lots of Christians get into spats with other Christians. Really, there'd be no better place to plant a flag and say, this relationship needs to change than right now as you prepare to take the bread and the cup. This is the mark that Jesus gave everything for us. And in turn, he asks us to love each other, to forgive each other, to be reconciled to each other. And so maybe there's something that you need to deal with, a place where your pride, your agenda, your honor, your fill-in-the-blank has been offended by a brother or sister, and you realize it's not right. 
And I know, you're probably thinking to yourself, yeah, but it's not my problem, it's their problem. Trust me, if you keep waiting for everybody else to fix their problem, you're never gonna fix yours. So maybe this is your time to say, Lord, I wanna follow you. And, and that thing that has caused division, that thing that has held me away from that person, I wanna lay that down at your feet and ask your forgiveness and pray that you would help me to take the step I need to take because it's not just the be, is it? It's the do. Take the step to reconcile a relationship. Take some time to pray. Thank you. Thank you that we've been called to be part of your family. We come from all kinds of earthly families. Some of them have been fantastic. Some of them have been terrible. But thank you we've been called into your family, a family redeemed by your grace. Lord, forgive us if in the context of living in this family, we have allowed an offense to get in the way. We've allowed an agenda. We've allowed our politics. We've allowed whatever it is to come between us and a brother or a sister. Forgive us, Father, we pray. Help us to honor this broken bread, your body broken for us. Lord, may we, may we do what we need to do to fix the broken relationships. Thank you, this cup reminds us that your life was poured out to give us life. We give you thanks. We prayed in your holy name. Amen. All right, if you got that little cup, turn it upside down. The bread is on the bottom. Let's take the bread together. Let's take the cup. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for what this simple little meal reminds us of. Help us, Father, to live it out, I pray. In Jesus' name.